Well, discerning truth from error may be one of the most difficult duties that we have as Christians. Error is absolutely everywhere. It's everywhere. And I don't know if you've noticed, but error rarely presents itself as error. It doesn't normally do that. You have to discern what is error. Truth oftentimes seems to us hidden or it's often shouted down by the louder popularity of what presents itself as error. And then there is the reality that our hearts do not naturally navigate in the direction of truth, but they drift along in the easier currents of error that are often presented as truth. And it's interesting to see that even when the consequences of living according to error bite us, have you ever noticed that we have a tendency to try to preserve the error that we have been believing? Discernment is very difficult. In fact, discernment has to be cultivated intentionally or you will not have it and you will not live according to it. Discernment has to become a habit for effective growth that we need to cultivate. It's a habit that will help us grow in our hope in the Lord. How is discernment connected to hope? It should be obvious. Whatever truth it is, whatever ideology, whatever belief system you are allowing to drive your life, it is that in which you will hope in. And when that disappoints, that's when you are devastated. So what you believe and what you trust in, what you put your hope in, has to be solid and clear. Now, we've been talking about the habits of effective Christian growth all the way back to verse 12 of this chapter. We have noted that chapters 4 and 5 are all about how to grow. You remember chapter 4, verse 1, we're to excel still more. It's all about growth. And the two Christian graces that are emphasized in chapters 4 and 5 in which we are to grow are our love for each other that was described for us in chapter 4, verses 3 to 12, and our hope in God, which was described for us in chapter 4, verse 13, through chapter 5, verse 11. And then when we came to chapter 5, verse 12, and we're moving through our present section today, we found a summary of rapid-fire commands that help us grow in our love for each other and in our hope for God. Love grows as we appreciate each other. That was verses 12 and 13. As our patience with each other grows, that grows our love, chapter 5, verse 14. As our goodness toward everyone grows, chapter 5, verse 15, that means our love will grow. Our hope in God grows as we find our joy in God in all of the times of life, chapter 5, verse 16. And as we're constantly praying about everything in life, chapter 5, verse 17. And when we're intentionally grateful in the midst of every circumstance, verse 18, because all three of these, joy, prayer, and gratitude, are what God wants for us. They help us long for his coming and see everything as being fulfilled and completed and new and whole when he comes. But there's a final grace that will grow our hope in God that's described here in this passage. It's found in verses 19 to 22 that Mark read for us. And it's the grace that is that difficult duty of discernment. This is so necessary for us to grow. The ability to see and know the difference between what is right and what is wrong, what is truth, and what is error, what is directly from God, and what is not. The truth you live by practically is the truth that you will hope in ultimately. So this issue of discernment will drive whether you are a hopeful or a hopeless kind of person. In fact, life will show what it is you believe and what it is you hope in. And that's why we have to be so discerning as to truth and error. And there are so many voices out there. 
And we have access to so many more voices today who are telling us what truth and error is. And many of them are put together in some of the most amazing ways that convince us. Some, are the, some of these voices are helpful because they're biblical. Some not so much. So when it comes to fixing a part on your car or maybe barbecuing your turkey for Thanksgiving, YouTube might be a great source for what is true and what is not true about our world. We'd better be very, very discerning. When someone is suggesting that things like the earth is flat, anxiety is an illness, God has a word for you, supported by well-documented YouTube abilities, or whatever website that has presented incontrovertible evidence, and yet God's word has spoken to these things? Which will you trust in, and which will you believe? Will you try to syncretize the two together? What is more compelling to you, the Bible or a video? It reveals our hearts. It reveals what makes us tick. It reveals what we ultimately will trust in. And that, that shapes everything about us. That's why these verses that we're reading, that we're studying this morning, they are a call to grow your discernment. In fact, these are verses that call us to grow in our discernment of what is presented to us as revelation from God. It's a call to discern what is presented as divine revelation. So we need to think carefully about it. This is not all that we could say about this subject, and certainly the Bible says more, but we're going to spend some time trying to look at what are the ingredients necessary to grow our discernment. I don't know if there's anything more significant for us today than to make sure that we are a discerning people. So three different ingredients to grow our discernment about what is presented as revelation from God. How do we grow our discernment? Three ingredients to grow our discernment, and especially to know what is from God as revelation from God that we should follow and what is not. The first ingredient. This is a call for us to be careful. It is do not reject revelation irresponsibly. Don't reject revelation irresponsibly. So what we find in verses 19 to 20, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Don't reject revelation irresponsibly. Don't quench the spirit. The word quench that's used here in this text is a term to describe, to describe extinguishing a fire. Matthew 12, 20 speaks of a smoldering wick he will not put out or extinguish. Mark 9, 48, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Or Ephesians 6, 16, the shield of faith is that which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. It speaks of the ability to put out a fire. But here it's not fire that we're potentially putting out. It is the spirit. We're not to extinguish the spirit. What is interesting is that the Holy Spirit is mentioned two other times in this letter. It's mentioned in chapter 1, verse 5, when the word came from the apostle Paul to the Thessalonians. The gospel word came to them in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And then interestingly, it's also found, the Holy Spirit is found, and reference to the Spirit is found in chapter 4, verse 8, where Paul suggests that it is not a person who is rejecting his instruction on purity, that if a person rejects his instruction on purity, they're not rejecting a person or a human being, but they're actually rejecting God. Remember that comment in 4.8? He who rejects this, this teaching about purity, is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, that's really interesting. 
So Paul is actually saying, what I'm teaching you, that if you reject it, you're actually extinguishing, as it were, putting out, as it were, the Holy Spirit. You're rejecting God and the Spirit who is in you. Paul is equating his teaching with the revelation that comes from the Spirit. To reject his teaching is to extinguish the Spirit. And we should note that there's there's no way in which we're actually going to really extinguish the Holy Spirit. We're not talking about extinguishing the Spirit as a person. We're talking about extinguishing the work of the Holy Spirit. What the Holy Spirit does. It's his activity that you can ignore. It's his activity that you can squelch because you reject it. The active work of the Holy Spirit among us is typically expressed through what we call spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, 1 Peter chapter 4. Talk about spiritual gifts that God has given us, particularly 1 Corinthians 12. The Holy Spirit is the giver of these gifts, and he is at work among us through these gifts. To ignore that work through those gifts is to extinguish or quench the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I think the primary work that Paul has in mind of the Spirit that can be quenched is expanded on in verse 20. What does he mean by do not quench the Spirit? He explains that by the next command. These are related together. They're tied together. What he means by extinguishing the Spirit is found in verse 20. Do not despise prophecies. That's how it reads literally. Prophetic utterances is one term. It's the word prophecies. It's plural. Not just prophecy as a whole, but prophecies, plural. Now, why do I think these are referring to the same thing? Well, what what is prophecy? It is God speaking through a spokesman, revealing his word to another person. How does he do that? He does that through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, that can be through the written revelation of Scripture, which is oftentimes actually referred to as prophecy. In fact, the majority of the times you'll find the word prophecy, it's used to describe a book of the Bible. 2 Peter 1.20 refers to this. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. And what that means is, It didn't come from you. It didn't come from some individual on their own. No prophecy of Scripture originated from an individual, but no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men who were moved by the Holy Spirit. All prophecy comes by means of the Holy Spirit. So I want to talk for a moment about what we mean by prophecy. This is a big issue today. What do we mean by prophecy? It would be easy if we just said it's the Bible and we could dispense with it and move on. I'd like to do that, but there's a lot more conversation going on than that. And in, in fact, I've had experiences where someone has prophesied over me before. I'm still waiting to see if it comes true. I'm still waiting, and, and maybe it will, maybe it won't. It was, I can remember a time about 35 years ago, I just finished preaching the Bible, and uh, We had a guest speaker who came in and did a small presentation on a particular ministry. And after the service, he came and kind of out of nowhere, just in the office area after the service, he just looked at me very intensely and then put both of his hands on my shoulders and said, I have a word from God for you. Wouldn't you like to know what it was? I'm not going to tell you. Again, I'm still waiting to see if it actually happens. And I don't know. Was this prophecy? I can remember when I was ordained to the ministry and I was kneeling and there were men who would come and lay their hands on me and they would pray over me and some prayed some words that they said were prophetic utterances over me. Were those prophecies? I remember meeting with an intern one time, not here in our church, but long ago. And this intern actually turned away from the Christian faith. Why? Because... His mother had dreamed a dream and made a prophetic announcement about him and a person that he was going to marry, and it didn't happen, and so he disbelieved God, and he turned away from the faith. Many, many years ago, a friend of mine and his wife were having a baby, and in the church service, a prophetic utterance was given about that child. It turned out to be twins, 
And prophecies were made about the twins. And both children died before they were born. It was devastating. Now, I could probably point out a number of pronouncements that were made that someone would say actually came true. So, there is quite a conundrum today. If there are prophecies that are made that don't come true and some prophecies that do, how do we know? How do we know? So let me spend just a little bit of time talking through, we can't go through everything, but I want to I walk us through a little bit about what the New Testament says about prophecy. Now prophecy can be, and it is, a direct revelation from a prophet that is not inscripturated. It can be a direct revelation from a prophet that is not going to be put into the Bible. It can be. It can be a specific revelation from God about a particular situation or a person. For example, in the book of Acts, in Acts 21, we see a prophet by the name of Agabus. And Agabus was a New Testament prophet. He was not an Old Testament prophet, a New Testament prophet who gave a prophecy about a coming famine that actually did come to pass. It's recorded in Acts 11. He comes back into the picture in Acts 21, and he's giving a prophetic announcement about the Apostle Paul being taken as a prisoner as a result of the Jews' opposition. You can see that in Acts chapter 21 verses 10 through 14, Agabus gives this prophecy and he takes the belt. And he says the person who owns this belt is going to be bound and he's going to be handed over and the Jews are going to deliver him over. And I've been reading and I've interacted for many years with a number of people that suggest that either Paul did not obey what the Holy Spirit had said that he should do, such as don't go down to Jerusalem because this is going to happen to you, and he directly disobeyed that because he did go to Jerusalem, or that perhaps Agabus was actually wrong in his prophetic announcement because it was not the Jews who handed it over, it was the Romans. And so, some would suggest that Agabus prophesied, but he prophesied incorrectly, or Paul disobeyed. I think all of that suggestion is in error. Paul was told in the prophecy that he would, if he went down to Jerusalem, he would be bound, he would be taken into custody. That happened twice in verse 4 and in verse 10. He was told in Acts 21 that this would happen. And it could be that the Holy Spirit was prophesying that as a test to see whether he would go down to Jerusalem or not, which he already knew was the will of God. But what do we make of it? Was it the Jews or the Romans that bound him? Well, let me ask you the question. In Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 4, when the apostles said that Jesus was crucified by the Jews, is that right or wrong? Who crucified Jesus? Because the apostles accused the Jews of crucifying Jesus, but who crucified him actually? Well, the Romans did. But how did the Romans come to crucify him? By action of the Jews. How was Paul delivered into the hands of the Romans? It was the action of the Jews that did so. So the prophecy is not inaccurate. In fact, if prophecy, which it is, if it is a direct revelation from God, then the prophecy itself cannot be errant or else God is errant. Now, I hear some who suggest, well, maybe it's the person who's filtering it through and they pronounce it wrong. So then you could never actually trust a prophecy. If a prophecy is a direct revelation from God, not dealing with a text that's already revealed, that's given to us like teaching, but giving a direct revelation from God, a prophetic announcement, this is the word of God. You might respond to the word of God in a wrong way, but the word itself, if it's a prophecy, is going to be exact. It's given by God directly. So it can't be in error, and we shouldn't view it in error. So like Paul, there was a prophecy given about him, a certain situation, and that's not a book of the Bible. We have the record of it, but the prophecy itself was not simply inscripturated. 
We have other examples of that. Prophecy being a direct revelation from God was made about Timothy. We don't even know all the details of what was prophetically made known about Timothy, but evidently in the presence of a number of apostles, even Paul himself, there was prophecy made about what kind of ministry Timothy would have, 1 Timothy 1.18. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you. Or 1 Timothy 4.14, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance or literally a prophecy. There was some prophetic word declared about Timothy's ministry that Paul reminds him of. We don't know what that was. It wasn't recorded in the Bible. So some prophecies are not just Scripture. Prophecy is described as a spiritual gift in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. In fact, it is a gift that comes from the sovereign determination of the Holy Spirit to a person for the edification of the church, 1 Corinthians 12, 7. It's to edify the church. Or it could be given, and the result of the prophecy is that it edifies, it exhorts, or it consoles, 1 Corinthians 14, 3. That's the result, and that's what the Word does. That's what God's Word does. It edifies us, it exhorts us, it consoles us. That's what God's Word does. That's the result of it. In fact, the gift of prophecy is a higher gift than that of speaking in tongues because when a prophecy is made, a direct revelation from God, you understand it. As opposed to speaking in tongues, which is direct revelation from God in another language you have not learned and no one understands it. And both of those are presented in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 as public speaking gifts. Not private gifts, public speaking gifts. That's why you should prefer as a church to hear prophecy, not tongues. Why? So you can benefit from it. So that the whole body would benefit from it. You would want prophecy. It's understandable. It's in your language. You, you know it. So prophecy could be a direct revelation from God through people that expose what a person believes and convicts them of sin, even an unbeliever, and brings them to faith in Christ. That's what 1 Corinthians 14 23 to 25 suggests. That an unbeliever might happen to come in. If they heard you all speaking in tongues, what would they think? You're nuts. But if they heard clear words, direct revelation from God that exposed their heart in front of God, they would fall on their face because their heart secrets have been disclosed. What they'd been holding on to as truth was shown to be error and God had confronted them and they fall on their face and say, God is really among you. And that happens regularly when we're preaching the Bible we're telling people, here's what God says, here's how God sees, thing and so, sees things, and someone says, well, that's not how I've seen it, that's not how I've understood it, and they're confronted with the Word of God, and they turn from their viewpoint of living to conform to God's Word. That happens. When God was giving direct revelation through prophecy, it could also be something that was revealed, not just spontaneously in the moment, could have been something that had been revealed prior. And in the assembly, the prophet stands and says, I want to give you what God has said. Or it could be something that was given spontaneously. We have an example of that in 1 Corinthians 14, 29 through 32, where instruction is given, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But If a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. So someone could be coming to the assembly saying, here's what God said. And then revelation comes to another. The first has to be quiet. The next one gets up to speak. And he says, you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. It's not as if somebody can just pop up and say, all right, Brett, you sit down. I've got something else. And they stand up. Whatever is said, whether the prophet speaking originally or the prophet about to speak spontaneously, has to be examined by all the other prophets as to whether it is true or not. We have found that four women were mentioned to be prophetesses in Acts 21.9, the virgin daughters of Philip who was called an evangelist. We don't know what their ministry was, what it consisted of. They were simply known to have been those who prophesied. 
Some women were prophesying in the church in Corinth. We learn from chapter 11, verse 5 of 1 Corinthians. And yet Paul tells them in chapter 14, verses 34 to 35, they should not be prophesying in the church. Typically, New Testament prophecy from New Testament prophets was not about specific people or specific circumstances, but actually tied to revealing what we call the new covenant or the mystery. Sometimes you'll read that term, the mystery of the gospel. That is, something was hidden away in the Old Testament prophets that is now being revealed in the New Testament by New Testament prophets, and that is the new covenant, how Jesus is the completion of all the covenants and the pinnacle point of all of it. And when did that happen? Well, it happened in the first century under the apostles and the prophets of the New Testament church. Paul actually says a few times that New Testament prophecy came from and by the apostles and prophets and was the foundation for how the New Testament church is to be developed and on which we stand. It is the revealing of the new covenant. For example, Ephesians 2, 19 and 20 So then you who are no longer strangers and aliens, speaking of the Gentiles, you are fellow citizens with the saints, that is all who have had faith in God, and you are now God's household. And what is God's household? It is what has been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. What do we base our church on? The foundation of what we base our belief on is that which was revealed by direct revelation by the apostles and the prophets of the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 4. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. There's that term, the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, but it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. What's the role of the prophets? The typical role of the prophet is not to stand up in the assembly and say, Rob, there's an issue going on in your life, and we're going to tell everybody about it today. The primary role of the prophets in the New Testament was to say, here is what God is revealing to us in the completion of the new covenant that you should believe and follow as the revelation of God. In fact, Ephesians 4 verse 11 mentions that these apostles and prophets who were laying the foundation through direct revelation of the New Testament church. They're gifts from Christ that help us to be edified, and which we still are. Every one of the writings of the New Testament that we have is from a New Testament apostle or prophet. That's the foundation of what we believe. So, in the first century, when the New Testament mystery or the New Covenant or salvation, as we tend to call it, is finalized in the person of Jesus Christ and it's been revealed, it was done through the apostles and the prophets. In fact, as they revealed this prophecy, it was oftentimes accompanied by signs and wonders. For example, 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says, the signs of a true apostle were done among you with perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. What confirmed the prophecy? What confirmed the apostolic testimony? Signs and wonders. Another interesting note about this, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul actually indicates that when the completion comes, the teleos, that which is complete, sometimes referred to as the perfect, translated that way. It really is the word that is most often referred to as what is complete, what is complete. When the perfect would come or the complete would come, then prophecy, that is direct revelation from God, and knowledge, which is another gift the Corinthians seemed to prize, which we know very little about, nothing outside of 1 Corinthians, that those two gifts would be caused to cease by the completion, the completion. In verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 13, it says, if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. 
passive voice, something will do away with them. If there are tongues, they will cease. They will cause themselves to cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. Same term, passive, it will be caused to be done away by something else. For we know in part, there's knowledge. We prophesy in part, there's the gift of prophecy. Those are partial. They're partial. When prophecy is still active, it means something is not complete. And he says, when the complete comes, when the completion comes, the partial, what is in part, will be done away. There's the term, done away, that was connected to prophecy and knowledge. When what is complete comes, it will do away with those two gifts. And then Paul gives an illustration. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child and think like a child and reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with the childish things. What did away with the childish things? What completion does, maturity does. He's not talking about when everybody becomes completely mature and has no more sin. He's talking about what happens when the finality of knowledge and the finality of prophecy comes, what makes them complete, then they're no longer needed. He uses another illustration. We see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And some interpret that to mean the second coming of Christ because they're reading outside theology into that. But you know as well as I do, if you had a mirror in front of you right now and you looked in the mirror, that's different than you looking at me directly, isn't it? So if I have a mirror, this is like Old Testament revelation. I'm seeing into the mirror and I can see what I look like, but it's different when there's completion. We're face to face then it's complete. I don't need the mirror anymore. I have you in front of me. I can see. So I think he means by that, that there is coming a time when revelation, direct revelation from God would complete the unveiling of the New Testament mystery. And we would have all of the revelation that we would need to understand the gospel mystery. And when that happened, prophecy would cease. It would be done away. I think the Apostle John actually alludes to that reality. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 22, verse 18, you remember this. He said, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. What does he call the book of Revelation? Prophecy. It's a prophecy. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Now someone will say, well, that just means you can't add anything to the book of Revelation. And I would say, correct. Which obviously means you should not expect there to be any prophecy that could be added to it. John expects that there is nothing more that could be brought to the table as a prophetic word that could be added. It's as if he assumed as he wrote the finality of the book that talks about the finality of all things that there was no more prophecy to be given. Now when Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, this was an early letter probably in the 40s AD and it would continue, he would continue and prophetic revelation would continue until the 90s AD. So for these Thessalonians, the gift of prophecy was still happening, and it would not be beneficial to that church to extinguish all prophecies. In fact, do you remember what Paul said they did with what he revealed to them in chapter 2, verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians? He says, we constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, which was likely prophetic revelation... You accepted it not as the word of man, but for what it really is, the word of God, which performs its work in you who believe. So you don't want to do away with prophecies when you're in this era of the church and that the Thessalonians are in, or you're doing away with legitimate revelation from God. So just summarize that. Prophecy is a direct revelation to people from God by means of a person who's known as a prophet. It was a gift operating in the first century primarily to reveal the new covenant mystery. And when that mystery was completed, Paul said it would be done away. Some of what was revealed by prophets 
was related to specific people, but always in public and almost always related to someone who had a connection to the prophetic ministry. It's the same gift that we see the Old Testament prophets operating in. They're not, there's no exegetical reason, there's no biblical reason we should see a difference between the New Testament prophets and the Old Testament prophets. It was direct revelation from God given to the church to complete the new covenant mystery about Jesus being the Messiah and how the new covenant community was to live in Christ. It means this. Prophecy is not an impression you have about someone or an event. It's not an impression you have. You say, well, what is that impression? An impression. And I'm not going to say it's not from the Lord or it's, it doesn't have biblical wisdom to it, but it's not what the Bible would call prophecy. Not when you look at all that the Bible says about prophecy. An impression in your spirit is not prophecy. Prophecy is not knowing what someone thinks before they say it. That's not prophecy. Prophecy is not vague images that come to your mind when you're praying. Prophecy is not an inaccurate message or a message delivered with errors. Prophecy is a clear, publicly communicated message from God. So what was Paul referring to here in our passage when he said, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies? Well, since the gift was still functioning, revelation was still being made, people should not have a stance that was oppositional to direct revelation being given. Well, why would they? Because false revelations were being given to them. For just a moment, look at 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 2 for a moment. We've referred to this already, but I want to show you an example of why they need to be careful with this. In chapter 2, we'll, we'll look at this next year when we start studying the book of 2 Thessalonians. In verse 2, he says, he doesn't want them to be quickly shaken from their composure or be disturbed either by, notice the language here, either a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. What was going on in the church in Thessalonica? Someone was saying either by spiritual prophetic voice with apostolic authority that the day of the Lord has come, interpreting their present circumstances to be the day of the Lord. Do you remember the effect that that had on people? They lost hope in God. Well, if that's true, then what Paul brought to us, supposedly by the Spirit, isn't true. We're in the day of the Lord. So then what happened to our deceased loved ones? There's no resurrection from them. They're, they're dead. They're gone. And they lose hope because of a false revelation being made to the church. And they lost hope. Now, if that happened to us, what we might tend to do is to say, then I'm not going to listen to any other person who says, I got a word from God. That would be problematic in that era, especially if Paul was the one speaking. So don't despise prophecies. You can't despise them. Don't quench the spirit by doing that. You say, well, well you said that this has probably ceased. And I, th I think the gift of prophecy has ceased. I don't, I don't mean by that God does not illumine our hearts. The Spirit is not active to illumine our hearts to help us see practical application in the Word. Or there's not some truth behind how He providentially guides us in active ways. I, I do believe that He does that. But they're not prophecies. So then what do we do with these verses? Well, let me just give you a couple of suggestions. How would we despise prophetic utterance? Today, you and me, all of us as a church. Well, you might despise prophetic utterance by ignoring completed revelation. You could ignore completed revelation, which is what? The Bible. Guess what? The Bible is called prophecy. It's called that. More often than anything else is, the Bible is actually referred to as a prophecy. If you ignore that, if you despise the Bible, you're despising and you're putting away prophecies. Don't do that. You could neglect just merely reading your Bible. 
You know what? It's not uncommon for me to engage in conversation with someone who says, how's your Bible reading going? And the common answer is, well, it could be better. So why aren't you reading? Well, I'm reading some other things other than the direct revelation from God. Now, I I like reading. If you came to my office, you'll get an idea. I like to read. I've got a whole section of books I haven't read yet that I'm just dying to get to. Never can quite get to. I buy more than I can read, I think. You do too. Don't, don't laugh like that. So, yeah, we, we love to read other things. We love to read that books that are interpreting the Bible, etc. We want to wrestle with all of that. That's good. But are you reading God's Word personally and not neglecting the reading of the Word of God? You, you know, you could be reading it and you could read it devotionally, meaning you're kind of reading yourself into the Bible in every place rather than doing the really hard work of interpreting the Bible accurately so you would know how it should apply to your life. And that would be despising completed revelation. You could actually ignore the Bible and turn it off because it's confronting specific issues you know in your life that God would address and you don't want to change. That happens, doesn't it? Do not despise what God has revealed in completed revelation. You could ignore the Bible or teaching from the Bible because people in your past have abused the Scripture, and because they've abused the Scripture, you say, that I'm just not going to listen to any of it. That would not be wise for your soul. Or you might be kind of tribalistic. I only listen to like one or two people because I don't trust anybody else. And I just listen to these, these teachers, and if anybody doesn't say what these guys say, then, well, I, I think that's not wise. Someone can teach something that's wrong, but they could be right on a host of other things, and you should be careful with that. In other words, you would have to be discerning, right? You have to be discerning. You could ignore the Bible through personal arrogance. You think so highly of yourself and your ability to discern truth and error that you make yourself the standard of truth and error. You could have a posture that's so reactionary to the past abuses that you listen to almost no one, or you could have a posture that's so open to anything that you listen to too much. What do you need then? Discernment. Don't turn yourself from what has been prophetically revealed. That would quench the work of the Spirit. Another way you could despise prophetic utterances or prophecy is you could despise prophecy by replacing completed revelation, by replacing, not just ignoring, but replacing it. What Replace it with what? You could replace it with false revelation. You say, well, what would be an example of false revelation? The Book of Mormon, that's false revelation. It's said to come from God, directly from God, yet it contradicts the Scripture and what it teaches about salvation. It is a false religion. The New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures produced by the Jehovah's Witnesses is a false revelation. They contort the text so it conforms to beliefs they say are authoritative. That's a false revelation. It denies what the Scripture affirms. Islam has its text It is a false revelation. It is not from God. It does not conform to what we have received in the scriptures. Buddhism or any other religious system that suggests a necessary body of truth that ends up being primary yet contradictory to the scripture, that's a false revelation. Reject it. So you could also despise revelation by replacing it with what I call general revelation. And I think this is done all the time. You you replace completed revelation with general revelation. Do you know what I mean by that? Psalm 19 talks about two kinds of revelation from God. In the first six verses, it talks about how you know God from what can be seen in the world. And then there's a way that the written word of God impacts you from verse 7 down to verse 14 in Psalm 19. So we talk about two kinds of revelation. General revelation, what 
anybody anywhere in the world can see at any time and know to be true about God because it's in the creation. Versus special revelation or specific revelation, completed revelation, which we have in the scriptures. The problem is, is that many people today want to base entire systems of belief on what they call general revelation. We've studied what's in the world and therefore we've come up with things that are true about us and they are now necessary for you to live a whole, completed, satisfied life. The problem is, is that in Psalm 19, verses 1 to 6, general revelation will not save you, and general revelation will not make you holy. It's known to everyone. It's not something you have to get into the trenches to study in detail. It's obvious to everyone all over the world, all of the time. General revelation, you hear it when someone says, well, all truth is God's What that normally means, all truth is God's truth, is that there's another body of truth outside the Scripture that stands with the Scripture, and it's equally authoritative as a revelation from God. You know what normally happens? General revelation becomes a higher authority than special revelation. But again, general revelation will not make you complete. It will not allow you to live a holy life in God psychological systems based on limited observations made by sinful people who don't see all things accurately and they have presupposed ideologies behind their observations, those psychological systems don't usually tend to support biblical revelation. But I hear Christians today appeal to it as if it's an equal authority. What happens when you do that is you despise completed revelation. You despise prophecy because you start to say the Bible's insufficient for my satisfaction. The Bible's insufficient to handle these issues. So it could be false revelation. It could be general revelation. Here's another way that we can replace completed revelation. We, could, we, we replace it with illumination. Illumination. It is often the case that we interpret the Spirit's work of illuminating our minds to how we should use the Bible as that of prophecy, as if it were a direct revelation from God that's authoritative. When you are hearing the Bible and then you think about your life and it's as if the light bulb goes on in that moment and you say, I just got exposed or I just understood that, that was just clarified to me. That is the Spirit actively illuminating your mind to the truth. But it's not what the Bible describes as prophecy. And at the same time, as you say that you're illuminated, you still have to be very discerning about what popped into your mind, don't you? We have to be very careful that we do not attribute to the Holy Spirit our sanctified daydreaming. Be very careful. Be careful. Like the guy who comes in and puts his hands on my shoulders and makes a prophecy about me. If I chose then to live the rest of my life in expectation of that word and dependence on that word 35 years ago, that would have erroneously shaped so many decisions that I would have made. If it happens, it does. If it doesn't, what is it? I don't know. And I don't have to ascribe anything to it. It just happened. Guidance is not prophecy. Impressions are not prophecy. We have to be careful about those things. Sometimes within the modern charismatic movement, there was a penchant for immediate revelation that becomes so significant that it tends to replace the completed revelation of the word. And rather than wrestling with what the Spirit has already revealed, we're constantly trying to be enamored by the Spirit revealing something new to us. Just because someone says they have a revelation from God doesn't mean they do. So don't despise prophetic revelation. So like I said, I was going to spend a moment or two on that. Don't reject revelation unnecessarily or irresponsibly. Let me give you a second ingredient, and, and I 
think these will go quickly. I do. <laughs> now that we know what we're talking about. So if I don't want to reject it outright, what should I do? Examine Revelation biblically. Examine Revelation biblically. That's where Paul goes next in 1 Thessalonians. Do not despise the prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. The word examine is a very important and helpful word. Dakimazo is the term. It means to test something to prove it's right or wrong. To test it. In order to prove its legitimacy. Analyze, approve, prove, test, examine. Those are other terms used in the Bible for this same term, dakimazo. Some would say, well, the fact that it has to be tested means prophecy could be given an error. No, the prophecy is not the issue. If God gives a prophecy, it's not an error. You're testing whether or not it's real prophecy or not. Not whether or not it was delivered in error or not. Is it prophecy? Is it not? Now, how am I going to do that? How am I going to be able to test it? Well, listen, here's, this is simple, honestly. The only infallible source of revelation from God that I know of, that I have, is the Bible. So I'm going to take what I know to be true, what I know is the revelation of God, and test everything according to that. Now, that's actually what Paul tells us to do. You remember in 2 Thessalonians when they were receiving a prophetic word about the day of the Lord in chapter 2? Paul spins from that verse in verse 2 of 2 Thessalonians 2 down through about verse 14 describing why what they're hearing is not true. And the reality is he had already taught them. They should have known this. Listen to what he says in verse 15 of what they should do. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. What is that? The traditions are not those traditions like the traditions of the elders that Drew was talking about last Sunday night, if you were with us, that could be cast aside, applications of the word that became standards in and of themselves. That's not what it's re referring to here. This is collected, authoritative, apostolic truth became the traditions by which the church would live by. It's doctrinal truth that comes from the prophets and the apostles, the traditions. So what do you do? You've got this word that came from the Spirit, now is the day of the Lord. What do you do? Don't listen to that. Look at what has been revealed to you already, which is the apostolic word. So again, how are you going to examine this? Examine by the scripture. So what is the new theory? What is the theory that you want to live by? What's the theory that's driving your day to day? What's the theory of life that's driving you to live the way you're living right now? What are you going to use to examine it? Well, I heard these experts on YouTube. Maybe. I mean, if it's replacing a part in your refrigerator, maybe that's good. If it's about how to live your life, why are you consulting YouTube? God has given you a sufficient source of revelation. Examine everything they say according to that. Is, is this new theory talking about what the Bible actually discusses? Is the Bible speaking to this? Do you have a theory that says, if I don't live according to this, I can't be whole, I can't be stable? You're on thin ice if that's not confirmed by Scripture. And I don't mean just simply that it, your theory doesn't contradict the Bible. Is your theory now minimizing the Bible? Is your system of life more important to you than the intake of scripture is to you for your sustaining grace? So 
So be careful. Lots of theories out there. Examine them. Examine them according to what you have revealed. Listen, if the Bible's not addressing the issue like I once walked into our kitchen and saw my wife with the refrigerator parts all over the floor. And I said, what happened? She said, I watched a video. (laughs) And I'm fixing our refrigerator. Yes, I was concerned. She was right. It worked. It was very good. It was very helpful. The refrigerator worked and we didn't spend a lot of money because if I'd looked at it and it was broken, I'd said, call somebody. I'm not going to waste my time with a YouTube video. She said, I'm not going to spend the money. I'm going to spend this time. Well, YouTube could be helpful for that because you know what? The scripture doesn't say anything about how to fix my refrigerator. It might address my attitude while fixing the refrigerator. (laughs) And it does do that. But when I'm talking about what is essential for me to be whole and staple and fulfilled, the Bible addresses that. So you don't have to have a new revelation from God because you have sufficient revelation from God. And if there is someone who gives you some new idea, you're going to not just throw the idea out all automatically, but test it according to what has been given to you. You say, okay, well, then what? Well, that's the third ingredient. So examine it biblically. But here's the third ingredient to grow your discernment. Respond to revelation appropriately. And this isn't hard. It's very clear as to what the apostle says here. How do you respond to revelation appropriately? Well, there's two responses that are given here. You see them? The first is trust what is biblically consistent. Trust what is biblically consistent. You see it in verse 21. Examine everything carefully. And then what? Hold fast. What does that mean? Cling to. Like your life depends on it. Cling to that which is good. Good according to whom? Good according to what? What has been approved? What fits the tradition that has been revealed to you in the pages of Scripture? Is the information biblically accurate? Is the revelation consistent with what the Bible affirms and what the Bible denies? Is the revelation biblically wise? Is the revelation biblically allowable? Is that revelation biblically necessary? And whatever aligns with the Bible And what it affirms or denies, I should hold on to it, and I should affirm it, and I should live according to it. In other words, whatever system you hold to, you better say, this is so tied to the Bible, I can bank my life on this. So you hold on to it. Secondly, another way to respond is to reject what's biblically inconsistent, right? Verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. Now, this isn't talking about what everyone might think is evil. If it has some appearance that someone might think is evil, you don't do it. That's not what this verse is. This has been taken out of context many times. This is in regard to what has been revealed as prophecy, as a revelation from God. If it fits truth, you hold to it. If it doesn't fit revealed truth, You abstain from it because it's telling you how to live life contrary to what God has revealed. That's the definition of evil. To live life in a way God has not called you to live, to live it contrary to how he's called you to live is evil. Abstain from it. Do not follow it. Because why? Why why should you not follow it? Because what you begin to hold to, you trust in you hope in, you bank on, you rely on, you lean on it. What does that do to your hope? If you shift it away from what God has accurately revealed, your hope is going to be dashed because you're going to live on something that will not last. You're going to lean on something that's not going to hold you up. It's not going to do what you thought it was going to do for you. So reject it. And that doesn't mean you have to be mean about it. Just reject it. Just reject it. If the theory goes against the grain of Scripture, reject it. If the teaching doesn't conform to the Scripture, turn away from it, abstain from it. 
If the information says it's required for something the Bible doesn't say is required, you don't have to be holding your conscience by it. If the revelation diminishes the role of the scripture or anything that it affirms, I would run away from it. If you have somebody who stands and says, this is the word of the Lord, and it doesn't confirm with the scriptures, ignore them. Don't follow it. Towards the end of the first century, the apostle John wrote this, beloved, 1 John 4, verse 1, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now, what is that, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? That's the tradition. That's the revealed apostolic witness about the person of Christ. So if someone says Jesus is not the Messiah who's come from God in human flesh... They're not from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that is coming and it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They, the false prophets, who say something contrary to Christ, they are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. That is a profound statement for John to make. He who is from God listens to us, because God, John knows what he's saying is the direct revelation of the Spirit. By this we know the Spirit of truth and the Spirit of error. I remember once that the elders had an individual, this was years ago, who came to us. Some of you will remember this, some of you won't, elders. Uh, someone came and they're not in the room, by the way, so don't look around. They came and they said they had a word from God for us. I mean, walked into the elders meeting and said, We've got a, I've got a word from God, suggesting that we needed to bring this word to the whole church. And they told us what we should do, and I could go into the details, but it wouldn't really be all that helpful, and we listened to it. A little shocked. That's not the normal thing that happens. And you're trying to discern, is this a conviction that's built on a biblical idea that this person's bringing? Because this is a well-known individual who loves the Lord, and don't doubt that at all. But it wasn't presented as, hey, would you guys just pray about or think about, but this was, this was from God, and this is what we should be exhorting the church to do. And we considered that, and we looked at that and said, but the reality is the Bible doesn't say that that's what everyone should do. In fact, the thing of which you're telling us everyone should do is an, an area of wisdom that every family is going to make a decision on whether they would do this or not do this. And if we stood in front of the church and said someone came to us with a word from God and likely it was something that they believed was built on biblical principles but was not something that the Bible calls for all Christians to do, yet we announced it to the church that every family should do this, we would cause division and divisiveness within our church. And that would be highly unwise, wouldn't it? So what do you do with that? Well, we rejected that. We didn't reject the person as an unloving person or an unkind person. We just said that's not something that should be brought to our congregation as a word from God because we're testing that by what the Bible has already revealed. And perhaps for that individual, the way he was applying the principles of God's word was good for him, his family, his children, etc. That's good. And others were making different decisions for equally biblical reasons and wise thinking. And why would we come and tell them that their process of thinking through that was unbiblical? This gets practical, doesn't it? I want you to think through. At the end of the day, God is not going to hold us accountable for the things that people come to us in personal conversations and says, this is what God wants you to do. 
At the end of the day, he's going to hold us accountable for what he has revealed in this book already. Right? This is the standard. And, and I'll say this. This is hard enough. This is difficult. To just know it and to live in it and let it guide me and drive me. If I started adding all these other things to it. So friends, how do you grow in discernment? Know the word of God revealed to you and cling to it and evaluate everything by it. And don't just accept the answer. Well, I have Bible verses. No, do the hard spade work. That's what discernment is. And find out. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your wisdom we need your wisdom so that we can understand what is brought to us in the scriptures. So that we can discern the way we are living and in what we are putting our hope. We want our hope to be in you. You're stable. There's a stability of life that rests when our life rests in you. Not in the shifting sands of culture but in you you transcend culture generations gender theories of life you transcend it all you've given us truth that transcends it all so make us wise and discerning people so that our hope rests in what is truly stable and we won't trust ourselves and our vision of things, but as you reveal to us your will in the word, help us to be conformed to it. We thank you again for the practicality of your truth. Give us wisdom now as we apply it. Apply it to the hearts of those who don't know you so that they would see they need a more stable system than what they have. They need the word of God and apply this to those who trust you so that we abandon any sinful approach to life and we conform ourselves to that that we find in the scripture which makes us more like Christ. And we pray for this help in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.